Let us turn now to words you'll find in Matthew chapter 12. Reading at verse 16. Matthew chapter 12, verse 16. And the chance that they should not make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. To descend forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. <coughs> Now these verses, which are a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 42, are very obviously messianic predictions fulfilled. And in the context in which they are set, they show us that uh, they refer to the quality of the work that our Lord Jesus Christ performed. And the quality of that work particularly as the work of the servant of God. As God's servant while he was in the world, his method was not that of drawing attention to himself by being ostentatious or as we might probably today colloquially call it being loud rather he was to work in the lives of men and women almost imperceptibly he shall not strive nor cry neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets a bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench. In other words, Jesus went about his work quietly. And uh, therefore, as this passage shows us, his purpose while he was in the world was not to exalt himself, but rather to abase himself. He was in the world, as he himself so often said, to serve. He was in the world not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent him. And the whole thrust of the passage here, therefore, is uh, directing attention to the servant of God doing the work that God gave him to do, and through that work accomplishing the great end for which he came into the world. And for a little this morning, I would like to look with you at two or three things as they are brought before us by these words. First of all, the servant described. 
my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And then we have the servant equipped for the work to which God calls him. And that's a reference to these words. That's what these words refer to. I will put my spirit upon him. Then thirdly, the servant and the work for which he was equipped. He shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall bring forth judgment to victory. Or as Isaiah in chapter 42 puts it more fully, though the holy verses and quoted fully in Matthew chapter 12, the, um, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall set judgment in the earth. This was the work for which he was equipped, bringing forth, showing judgment to the Gentiles and to victory. We'll see the meaning of that. And then finally and more particularly, the nature of this work. He will not quench the smoking flax and he will not break the bruised reed. First of all then, the servant described. My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. Now you and I are acquainted with the teaching that we have in the Bible, and that is uh, set forward, set forth so succinctly in the Shorter Catechism, there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. And you know that throughout the centuries, various theological battles have been waged around this great issue. Whether the Son of God, Jesus, is equal with God. Is Jesus God? And you know that today, as in many another age, there are some people who object to the teaching that Jesus is God. Now we have no problems whatsoever with that uh, teaching that Jesus is God. The Bible is very clear on it. The sort of catechism puts it in that very clear way, as does the confession of faith. Our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, is none other than God. They are equal. At the same time, there are aspects of their relationship to one another in which it becomes very clear that one is greater than the other. It was Jesus who said, my father is greater than I. Now then, if God the Father and God the Son are equal, how then could Jesus say of his father, my father is greater than I? Well, the way in which God is greater than the Son is, as you consider the relationship within what we call the covenant of redemption. And in that covenant, God the Father elected or set apart God the Son for a purpose. 
Let me just quote one verse in the Old Testament, from Proverbs chapter 8, as the Son speaks. I was set up, or set apart, or elected from all eternity. God in that covenant, God the Father, set the Son apart. Why? He set him apart that he may become his servant. That he might come into the world to serve the Father. And it is in that light, and in that light only, that the Father is greater than the Son. The Son came into the world to serve the Father. And in the covenant, in the covenant of redemption, that's the only way in which the Father is greater than the Son. There is no subordination of person or of nature, but rather of office or, enga or engagement or appointment. The Father appointed him. The Father set him apart. The Father sent him into the world and commanded him to do his will. The Father sent him in the world and demanded certain things of him. The Father sent him in the world, into the world and required certain things of him. He was set apart, elected from all eternity by God in the covenant for this purpose to serve. And in that covenant, the Father promised, as he says here, to uphold the Son. Behold my servant, whom I have, whom I have or behold my servant whom I will uphold. Mine elect, in whom my soul delight. The one who was the object of the Father's love, my beloved, and set apart as my beloved, was given this promise by the Father in the covenant that when he would come into the world in the form of a servant, that he would uphold him, he would sustain him, he would minister strength to him, he would minister comfort to him, and so on. These were the terms that the Father gave to the Son in the covenant. We sang here tonight, today in Psalm 89 I'll make him my firstborn, more high than kings of any land my love I'll ever keep for him or my grace I'll ever keep for him my covenant fast shall stand I remember being told some years ago and I think it's true story of a uh, the man whom some of you will remember with affection, son was an elder in this congregation, Tramat Sonnen. I believe that at one, on one occasion when he was returning from communions, I think it was in Point, he uh, boarded a bus in Stornoway, and one of the ministers who had been officiating at the communions in Point was on the bus. And the, the worthy elder came into the bus and he went up to the minister and he just quoted these words to him that I've read there in Psalm 89. He just quoted them to the minister and turned away and left him. My love I'll ever keep for him. Um, my covenant fast shall stand. And as it is in the Gaelic, my magrasga glemi. And the minister to whom he spoke these words was at that time, without anyone's knowledge, passing through a time of great spiritual conflict. And indeed, was on the point of entering into a period of spiritual darkness. 
And this was that worthy man's way, that spiritual man's way of reminding him that in the covenant, God was keeping or laying up, storing up grace or love for him for the time of need. And that's a messianic promise. It's what God the Father promised to the Son when he would come into the world to serve him, that in the posture of a servant and in the work of the servant, that he would keep, lay up, store up grace for him in his time of need, so that in his need as the servant he would turn to the Father and the Father would give him to meet him in his need, would give him of his grace to meet him in his need. And in that covenant, the Son promised to come, promised to serve, promised to suffer, promised to obey unto death. And nowhere and at no time do you see the Father's fervent love coming more to the forefront than when the servant was in the throes of suffering even unto death. God the Father could then say of God the Son, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased, and with whom I am delighted. The Son, as the servant, in other, way, in other words, was as much the object of the Father's fervent love as he had been the object of that love from all eternity. He never ceased to be the son, though he became the servant, and he never ceased to receive the Father's love as he served him in this world unto death. That then is the relationship that we have here as the servant is described. And then we have, secondly, the servant equipped for the work for which he was sent to the world. And these are the words which tell us of his equipment. I will put my spirit upon him. Now these are very, very interesting and very important words that we have here. I will put my spirit upon him. Because as there was an inseparable connection between God the Father and God the Son, so there was an inseparable connection between God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Now let us just for a minute trace this connection. We know of course that in eternity and in the, in, in the Trinity, the three are one. And they are the same in power and in glory. In other words, Whatsoever you can attribute to the Father, you can attribute to the Son and to the Spirit. Except one thing. Of the Father alone is it said that he eternally begets the Son. Of the Son alone is it said that he is eternally begotten of the Father. And of the Spirit alone it is said that he eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. These things apart, the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in the covenant of redemption 
have an inseparable connection. And it begins here that when the Son was set apart in the covenant from all eternity, the Spirit was at the same time set apart to equip the Son. And that equipment began when the Spirit prepared the body of the Son that he might become the servant. There was only one way in which the Son of God could become the servant of God. And that was by taking to himself human nature. The only way in which he could become a servant. The only way in which the Son could obey in this sense was by becoming the uh, was by becoming a, a man. There's an interesting question that arises there. You may like to think about it. In what sense did the Son serve the Father before he became man? You may like to think about that question. In what sense did the Son serve the Father before he took to himself human nature? But the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, had to prepare a body for the Son. And you know that this was the message with which the angel came to Mary. That the Spirit would overshadow her. And that she would conceive a son. And that that which she, would conceive, which she would conceive would be called the Holy One. Would be called the Holy One. This is what we call in Reformed circles the Immaculate Conception. Not the Immaculate Conception of Mary. But the Immaculate Conception of the Son of God within the womb of the Virgin Mary. There are some people who can't seem to grapple with this problem that a sinful woman could give birth to a sinless being, the Son of God. But if we believe anything, we must believe that he that was born of the Virgin Mary was none other than the Son of God. And that there was conceived within her by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Son of the human nature of the Son of God. This is the great teaching of the Bible and of the confession of faith. You know the way the confession puts it? The Holy Spirit took of the substance of Mary and conceived in a very miraculous way the sinless human nature of our Lord. A body, says the psalm, says, says, says Psalm 40. Again, a messianic psalm. A body hast thou prepared. This is, the, this is the way in which the New Testament explains to us these words. Mine ears thou bored, sin offering thou unburnt, it's not required. In other words, what the psalmist is talking about there is the preparation 
of the body of our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 10 makes that very clear. The Holy Spirit prepared the body of our Lord of Mary's substance within the womb of the Virgin. There are some people, Roman Catholics included, who try to get away from the difficulty of a sinful being giving birth to a sinless being by saying that the sinful being herself was immaculately conceived, that Mary herself had no sin. But there is not a shred of evidence in the Bible to substantiate that claim. For all have sinned, including Mary, and come short of the glory of God since the sin of Adam except one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I should get to grips with these teachings. They are of tremendous importance. You should know them. You young people should know these things and try to understand them. Fill your mind with them. That the Son of God took our nature and the way in which it was done was that the Holy Spirit prepared that nature for him. And then that Son and I wouldn't want, I wouldn't expect in a sense some of you young people to understand this. That son took that nature to himself. Took it to himself. The way the old divines used to put it, the only immediate act which was performed by the son with reference to his own human nature was that he took it to himself. He took it. The human, the Holy Spirit prepared it within the womb. And from that instant, the Son united that nature to himself in his own person, so that in one person he had two distinct natures. From the time of his conception, human and divine, in one person. And from that moment, and this is the point I want to make, from the moment of that conception, from the moment that he took that nature conceived by the Spirit to himself into union with this person from that moment in that person the human nature was dependent upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit and that's the point that this verse makes I will put my spirit upon him from that moment he was dependent upon the Holy Spirit when he was born into the world as a child he was dependent upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You are here today as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are dependent for your spiritual development and growth upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So was Jesus. You are dependent for your knowledge and your light upon the Holy Spirit. So was Jesus. Ah, you see. I thought he was God. He was. But you remember that he took that God, took to himself a human nature. And that human nature was not God. The moment you deify human nature, Jesus ceases to be the God-man. That human nature was dependent. And that's, just, that's the force of, remember, he was a servant. He was a servant. And as a servant, he was dependent 
upon the work and the ministry and the light and the aid and the help and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. As a five-year-old, he was perfect. Perfect. But remember, it was the perfection of a five-year-old, not the perfection of a 50-year-old. He grew, says the New Testament, in wisdom. Remember that. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor. Just as there was a physical development. The development of a physically perfect being, remember. There was also the development of a spiritually perfect being. And you cannot possibly run away with the idea. And it would be wrong of you to think that. That when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy disputing with the doctors, with, 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 the, with the theologians in the temple, you cannot run away with the idea that as a 12-year-old disputing with the doctors of, 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 of law and theology in the temple, that he was as perfect, that his understanding was as extensive as it was going to be when he was 30 years old. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and men. The Holy Spirit communicated knowledge to him. Now he was always perfect but remember something. Growth, development is not inconsistent with perfection. Those who are in heaven today are perfect, perfect in holiness. But though they are perfect, they are capable of development. The Lamb that is in the midst of the throne shall lead them to fountains of living water. And there's a very real sense in which even the human nature of our Lord and glory itself, perfect, is developing. It is still human nature, remember. It is still human nature. It is still finite human nature. It is still created human nature. And the create the creature or the creation must never become the creator. And that is what makes eternity eternity. That the creature for all ages will go on and on and on and on developing and always perfect always perfect will go on seeing and getting and learning and yet always perfect and remember that 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 was true of our Lord when he was in this world in his human nature the spirit of God was given to him to equip him to furnish him, to minister to him, to comfort him. And in a very special sense, and yet the Spirit, of course, the difference between him and you and me is this, that he had the Spirit in its fullness. You and I don't have the Spirit in that measure. He had it without measure. We have it in measure. Or we have him, rather, in measure. And another thing, he was given the Holy Spirit as the unction, the, 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 the anointing oil, set apart for the work of prophet, priest and king. Remember that's why the, the oil that was poured upon these men at the times of their consecration or ordination when a man was set apart to the office of a prophet he was anointed with oil. 
similar to the office of priest or king. They were anointed with oil and that signified that that man was not just set apart by God for the office, but that he was equipped by God for the office. So was the Lord. He was given the spirit, not just set apart to office, but equipped for it. And given the spirit in its, in its fullness, that he might serve the Lord. Then thirdly in the word, the servant and the work for which he was equipped. He shall show forth, he shall show judgment to the gentle. Bring forth judgment to victory. Or bring forth judgment to truth. Set judgment in the air. Now what does this mean? Well, it means very simply this. The word judgment means righteousness. And the purpose for which Jesus came into the world was to establish righteousness. How was he to do it? By his own death. This is how he was to do it. He was to bring forth judgment unto truth or perhaps even judgment by the truth. And this is interesting. The work that Jesus accomplishes in the world, he accomplishes it by means of the truth. By means of the truth of the word. And the word is all about himself. And the world hears what Jesus did. And why did it? That's righteousness. The passion of the Son of God suffering unto death. And this is what is proclaimed by the world to the world, to the Gentiles, to the Isles, to all the world. The news comes that Jesus is God's righteousness. Jesus is man's remedy in his ruin. And this comes to men through the truth. And the Lord accomplishes his purpose through the word. Through the word. We sang there in Psalm 45 that pic that we have of the king going forth to battle, riding forth prosperously in state. And in, in, what, in what, what cause? What is the cause that is emblazoned on the flag for the truth? In the interest of the truth. That is why. In other words, another way of putting this. That the true religion or the Christian faith is going to spread abroad through the truth. And this is the instrument of his victory. The word, the truth. He will bring forth judgment or righteousness unto victory through or by means of the truth. And you know that this is why the church of God exists in the world today. To proclaim the truth. And were it not for the truth there would be no church. And this is the only instrument that the church is disposed from the hand of her king. The truth. And if God doesn't bless the truth in the lives of men and women, boys and girls, there will be no blessing. If people are saved through the truth in the hand of the Spirit, there'll be no salvation, there'll be no Christians. And this is our only instrument, our only hope. We have nothing else. Paul said this to the Corinthians. The Jews, they seek a sign. They want miracles. The Greeks, they want philosophy, wisdom. 
We can't give it to them, he says. We preach. That's all we have to do. All we have to give. We preach. Christ crucified. From every pulpit throughout the land today. It's the only message that God has given to any man commissioned by him. Go and preach. Tell the truth. Give the truth. Communicate the truth. And that's the instrument in the Lord's hand that is going to produce the victory. And how now finally does he accomplish it in a very wonderful way? He shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break. And the smoking flax shall he not quench till he hath brought forth judgment of truth or righteousness unto victory by the truth. This is how he does it. He doesn't deal with men violently. He doesn't as they were grabbed by their lapels and shake them to lie. He doesn't do violence to any man's will or heart or conscience or understanding. He takes that individual and he works on him through the truth bringing him to see his need of Christ as a saved. These, I, that I believe, is, what is the meaning of these two metaphors that are used here. He will not break the bruised reed and he will not quench the smoking flax. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't brainwash. He doesn't hoodwink. He brings the influence of the truth to bear upon the mind. And through the truth, he saves men and women, boys and girls. There is no place for the manipulating of the mind in the Christian church. There is no place for the tactics of the Moonies in the Christian church. The Lord brings the truth to bear upon the mind by the saving irresistible efficacious influence of the Spirit. And the mind comes to understand and to see. But what kind of people does he deal with like that? Well, he calls them here too, he uses two metaphors, bruised reeds and smoking blacks. And the idea here is to bring before us the idea this, the thought of the, the weakness and the brittleness and the brokenness of the human being with whom he deals. Every individual, and he's broken. Broken and bruised and dented by forces external to himself. Astro bru are, you know what I read this? Bulrushes. Like, like, just like straws, long straws standing up beside the riverbank, intending to be, to be trodden underfoot by man and beast, and they're bruised, almost snapped in two, and the moment they're snapped in two, they're worthless, useless. And that's the idea that you have here. Some head is broken, and at the point of just a useless. The head is hanging by a thread, but not yet broken off. Here you have a picture of human nature so often in its brokenness, in its feebleness, in its brittleness, ready to be snapped off. The idea of the, 
uselessness and the hopelessness of this individual. And there are many people like that in the world today, people whose hearts are broken by distress, by calamities and sorrow, broken by opposition and loneliness and persecution, broken by burdens that they find impossible to shoulder and to bear, broken by unkindness, by unfeeling cruelty, broken by their own lack of strength, feeling just cast aside and of no use to anybody. I'm sure you've said this yourself. Even when you're confronted with the claims of Christ. Who, me? Me? What use would I be in the cause of Christ? What purpose could I serve? If you only knew who you're talking to. If you only knew how hopeless and how worthless my whole life is. Well, my friend, may you know more of it. Because it's to such a person the Lord comes and says, He will not bruise the smoking flax. We've seen a minute what that means. He will not bruise the broken reed. And then he says, he uses the second metaphor. The smoking flax. He will not quench. You know what this, what this was? This was, the, this was the, like a wick that was used in the oil lamps, in the old-fashioned oil lamps. Flax. And the idea here is the flax is smoking. It's, it's been lit. Or at least some, someone has tried to light it. And all that's coming from it is this smoke, this vapor, this, this, uh, this uh, evil-smelling vapor. There doesn't seem to be any fire, no flame. And it's been said that this is a figure, a type, of the work of grace in the human heart. Something's working there. The will is being influenced, but it hasn't yet been wholly won. The heart is under the influence of the gospel, being moved and directed and channeled into the ways of the Lord, but still hasn't come into the light or the flame, hasn't burst into the light or the flame of the love of God. If there's faith there, it is very weak. If there's love, it's so feeble you wonder if you love at all. There are some things you like, but really do you love the Lord and the cause of Christ? The grace of patience and desire and courage, perseverance, the desire to stand on the side of the Lord. It seems to be there, but it seems to be there. But it doesn't seem to be strong enough. The progress from smoke to flame seems to be so slow, it's fitful, irregular. And really when you think in terms of light, well, my life isn't light. It just, again, like the bruised reed, it is so useless and so hopeless. Destitute of kindling power. Now there may be two stages in a person's life when this could be true be true of the newness of it. Perhaps in someone's life here when the work of grace as it were just been newly lit. But it hasn't yet come as it were to the light. The flame hasn't burst out. It could unfortunately also be true 
of those who soon in whose line the flame of grace has burnt. But it is now as though it were burning out. Burning out. A book was published, a booklet was published some two years ago called The Burnt Out Ministry. Perhaps some of you are writing your own booklet of late. The Burnt Out Christian Life. Influences brought to bear upon your life from outside and from inside your life. That are, as it were, quenching the flame of grace and the flame of love in your life. And there are things that tend to extinguish grace if you're not very careful. Worldliness, materialism, sinful practices, sinful pursuits, sinful company, sinful associations, weak resolves, giving place to temptation in your life. Not being as careful as you ought to be in your Christian life. Lack of Bible reading and prayer. Christian fellowship and attendance upon the means of grace. Oh yes. These things my friend can influence your life and you're not, you may not be aware of it. As the insidious influence is going on. And after a period of time what happens? You discover that the flame that used to burn so brightly is all extinguished and so you're just going through the motions for the sake of going through the motions in both metaphors the idea is very clearly brought before us that here as it were here is life for usefulness of light and just hanging on by a thin thread well, here's encouragement for you today. This is the promise that he has given. He will not break the bruised reed. And he will not quench the smoking flax. You, I, and other people might tend to break you. And might tend to quench it. But he won't. Here is a picture of one who deals lovingly and tenderly. And at the same time firmly. With these kisses. The tenderness of his dealings. Have you ever seen that? You know what a gardener is like. Remember once, see, being often with a, with, with, with a man who was a gardener in Dingwall. He was a big, big man. And uh, remember how, how he would spend hours transplanting seedlings. You could, you, could, you could hardly see them transplanting them into their own boxes where he was going to bring them up we're going to bring them on and of course the summer they developed into wonderful strong plants there was that big man huge hands dealing so tenderly with these tiny seedlings here you have a picture of the law dealing tenderly with people who otherwise could be easily broken what a gardener this person is remember what Mary Magdalene thought about him at the sepulchre, she thought he was the gardener. Well, in a real sense, he is a gardener. And the best gardener this world has ever known and ever seen. How tenderly he deals with these tender plants. And how graciously he transplants them. How graciously he brings them on. 
Have you noticed maybe in your own life, as you look back, how, we, how, how insignificant as it were the beginning of all this process was in your life? Perhaps a wee word that you heard somewhere, some that you read, or some that you saw, and it triggered off this thing in your life. And today, it's stronger than it was then, but it's not strong enough. You need more. But you see, he's dealing with you, my friend. He's dealing with you. And he's bringing you on and he's bringing you through. And isn't it wonderful that in the face of all the opposition and the face of all the difficulties that you've had to contend with, isn't it significant that the work is still there? Albeit weak, but it's there. And why? Because he hasn't broken it and he hasn't quenched it. That's why. Because he has dealt so tenderly with you. A wee word here and a wee word there has, as it were, fanned. It's a sort of a spark. And then there's a wee flame. That wee word. Perhaps that lecture, that sermon. Maybe that Christian fellowship, that testimony. Maybe that prayer or that chapter brought life out. Gave you more light. More heat. More feeling, more meaning. And you had the other day and you see this is the way the Lord works bit by bit he brings people on and he brings people through no man is so bruised that he cannot be healed no man is so injured that he cannot be restored no man is so far off that he cannot be brought near no man is so removed from that self-complacent idea of soundness that he once had about himself and that's been shattered but not to the extent that you cannot be renewed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ no faith, no love no hope, no desire no matter how weak it may be it's there from his hand that it may be destroyed but that it might be strengthened it is there that he may fan it into flame. How? Well, you know how you fan fan a piece of smoking paper into flame. Let the air do it. Give it some oil, some fuel. Remove the things that are, that are opposing its development. And this is what he does. The oil of the spirit. The air of his word. And the removal and the disciplines of these things that stand between you and yourself. If you want your life to be aflame for the Lord. If you want your life to be strong and not broken. Get rid of these things that come between you and your spiritual development and growth. Do the things that you ought to do. There are two sides to it. There's a beautiful picture. I'm going finish. There's a beautiful picture in your testament. Of a man in whose life the light and the flame of love and faith had almost died. But the Lord didn't allow it to die. He fanned it into glorious flame. Who was it? Peter, of course. Who denied his Lord with cursing and swearing. Then at the resurrection, Peter got a message. The Lord is risen. He wondered was true. And he ran to the grave. Then he got another message. Go and tell my disciple and tell Peter that I am risen. Peter 
this little survived. Remember how he put it later on, years after, years after when he wrote that letter? God, he said, has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's it. He started the fire all over again, he said. With that wonderful message and with that wonderful achievement. And that same man, seven weeks afterwards, went out. And in the hand of God, he was the instrument of bringing 3,000 to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord can do. No wonder the Bible puts it like this. He will not break the smoking flax. And the way, the way that Isaiah puts it is this. He will not fail. He will not be bruised. He will not be discouraged. He will not be quenched. You see the idea? You see the two contrasts? You and I will, but he won't. You and I are weak and faint and broken, but he isn't. You and I are brittle and unworthy and useless, but he isn't. The same message that I say I gave in chapter 40. He giveth power to the faint. And to them who are without might, he'll please the strength. You see the two things brought together? You and I in our hopelessness, in our uselessness. In our emptiness and in our weakness, confronted by the Lord in his strength and in his grace and his power. He will do it. He will do it for you. And this is the encouragement that comes to you today. He is not subjected to pressure from the outside as you are. He is not subjected to pressures from the inside as you are. He is there to strengthen and to encourage and to illumine. He is there to revive so that nothing will thwart his purposes. He will bring forth judgment, truth unto victory. Is this what the Lord is doing for yourself today? Is this a message you need today? In your weakness, in your emptiness, in your own seeming hopelessness. Encouraged to believe that the Lord has done so much for you. Well, my friend, you take this great encouragement with you. He didn't give you that to leave you. He gave you that to bring it on and to bring it out. See that you don't hinder it. Let us pray. Bless us, O Lord, today. We thank thee for thy word and for thy grace. And we pray that thy spirit may work in us through thy truth more and more to the glory of thy glorious name. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.